0: Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Foster Warrior Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ, Sermons from the Pulpit of Fosteria Baptist Church. Our scripture reading this week was Jeremiah 17 verses 5 through 10, Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10. The Lord will speak as he has been talking about the sin of Israel and describe two different men, one who trusts in his heart in man and one who trusts in his heart in the Lord. He then says that ultimately the heart is deceitful. It's desperately sick. It's desperately wicked. We can't know what our own hearts are thinking. But the Lord, and we could add from elsewhere in Scripture, the Lord alone is the one who tests the heart. The Scripture reads, Thus saith Yahweh, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness and a salt land and not inhabited. Blessed be the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green And shall not be careful in the year of drought neither shall cease from yielding fruit the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it i the lord search the heart i try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. We return today to our Matthew series with the hope that over the course of the next four weeks, we'll have hammered in, among other things, one Key point. That Jesus Christ, wisdom incarnate, cannot be trapped or tricked. And that begins with the first question. Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. Then went the Pharisees. And so, counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man. For thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Yahweh God, our Father, we do ask that today we would be left with the same marveling, the same amazement and awe that you by your Spirit would cultivate in us a right understanding of the wonder and majesty of your Son. And so we may behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, direct us to see it. Direct us to rejoice in it. And allow it to lead us to faith, repentance, and acceptance of the grace that you alone can provide. And so, Lord, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You know, in the world we live in today, seems there's a pretty significant shame. Perhaps it could be described on the online forums as cancel culture. But there's an expectation of having the right thoughts, living in the right way, and thus not receiving shame, criticism, or ridicule from those around us. Really, it's not just an outside problem, nor is it really a significant, timely problem. seems that we've always, as human beings, been wired in some ways to be heralded in to think the right way, to have the right thoughts, and thus not be in danger of shame based off of not dotting the right eyes or crossing the right. Within a church example from several centuries ago, we could think about Martin Luther as an Augustinian monk, living in constant feel of shame, constant feeling of nakedness before God, because he couldn't handle the monastic vow and the monastic way of life, couldn't handle this supposedly religious right way of doing things correctly. Earlier than him, Anselm felt much the same. I think we feel it. Perhaps we feel it in having to remind ourselves that the people around us are not our gods. We don't need to feel shame and embarrassment because they disagree with something that's happening. Or perhaps we feel it because we know we don't measure up we know that God's standard is impossible to reach. We can't have perfect obedience. So we can struggle with shame. You know, there's one human being that never experienced such problems. My guess is that he's the only one who has the situation of not feeling that shame from the pressure of his peers and living up to expectations of other people or of God. And it comes to be on display as the Pharisees come up and try to trap that one person that one human being, Jesus Christ. So our text and narrative today begins with a test, a trap, a question. Our first scene, our first part is verses 15 to 17, which, again, we remember reads like this. Then went the Pharisees, and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man. For thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Let's note first in this passage. That the hostility, the tension is increasing as the time goes on. The Pharisees have been upset with Jesus for a while. Now they're taking counsel together. And they're trying to do something that's going to entangle him, that's going to trap him in his word, in his speech the word in the flesh, they're trying to find a way to trap him within his word and speech. So they don't even go and try to do this themselves, but instead send some of their disciples with the Herodians. Perhaps they thought that the disciples of the Pharisees would be able to subvert his expectations, would be able to get in unnoticed wouldn't be as immediately hostile. And you've got to hear what they say in verse 16. Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. You see the tragic irony in what's happening here. These Pharisees, disciples, and Herodians are coming up to Jesus and commending him for his sincerity for his genuineness. They're commending them for the very sincerity that they lack in their commendation of him. Master, we know that thou art true. We know that you are sincere. We know that you are genuine, and we know that you teach the way of God sincerely, genuinely, without pretense. They don't believe it, but their commendation is directly spot on. Another tragic irony of what their statement is. Jesus is true. He is sincere. He does teach the way of God sincerely. And the real kicker neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person. It could have been translated, you do not look on the face of men. You don't look at the pers- appearance or the status of any particular man. You don't look at the face of man trying to court their favor and approval. You don't look at their face rather than their heart. You don't look at their face thus being swayed by appearances, thus showing favoritism to those who are of higher status. You don't look to the face of men such that you're bound to live in such a way as to go according to the grain of expectations of those around you, or else you'll feel shame. You're not under the influence of peer pressure. Nor are you going to be flattered by mere appearance. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus not looking upon the face of men not being pushed around by status or courting approval. So that's all in their efforts and attempt to butter him up, to get him to let his guard down, and thus answer the question incorrectly. And the question is, is it lawful? Is it right? Is it underneath the Mosaic, the Sinai law, correct to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Should the tax be given to Caesar or should we withhold it? We are Jewish after all. Within the book of Matthew, this is not the first time that something like a tax had been mentioned. In chapter 17, verses 24 to 27, it was the temple tax. A tax required of every Israelite male to be given to the Lord. I think that's part of the drama then going on. Jesus doesn't find himself obligated to pay the tax to the temple because he is a son, not a stranger. Is he going to feel the same way about the tax to Caesar? Is he going to show an allegiance and a loyalty to Caesar that he doesn't seem to be showing to the Lord? Maybe the better question is just simply they're trying to trap him into saying who is the real king. They're placing against them these two dual loyalties as if they are mutually exclusive. He can't do both. And they're maybe hoping that the crowd would get angry at him if he said pay the tax to Caesar. Rome almost certainly not popular. It was in the Bible that we learn of another person, a Galilean, who tried to conquer Rome and free Israel. If he says, don't pay the tax, then they can get him before Caesar as a traitor. His answers seem to put him in this corner. And if he doesn't answer, he shows himself to look on the face of men. To care and worry about what people think. It's so many wrong answers that in fact would disprove what they have said about him in verse 16. But as we turn the page, as it were, as we keep going in the account, we find that he doesn't give any of those wrong answers. Instead, as John Salehammer replies and explains, his reply only served to demonstrate his wisdom. So we get into verses 18 through 21 as Jesus provides his answer. But Jesus perceived their wickedness, and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. You know, the Pharisees, in their insincere talk, said that Jesus did not look at the face of men, And the first words of verse 18 show that that's the case because he sees right through their appearance, right through their flattery. Instead we read that Jesus perceived their wickedness. He looked straight into their heart and saw what was there. Saw the trap they had laid for them, for him. And so answered it, he calls it what it is, says that they're tempting him, that they're hypocritical pretenders putting on a mask, a mask that he sees directly through. Why tempt me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money, and they brought unto him a penny. Here he asks for the money that pays this tax to Caesar. They bring unto him a penny, or perhaps more accurately, a denarius. They bring un- unto him this coin, and with the coin then in their hand, he then asks, Whose? image and superscription is upon it. They're able to answer Caesar's. There's something about the fact that it's Caesar that's written in pen on there, engraved within it, and Caesar's face that is impressed upon it that allows him to be able to say, this is properly belonging to Caesar. So give to him what is his. But in so doing, that doesn't mean that that taxes means you're no longer being loyal to God. Caesar wants your money. God wants something more than that. Give to God, that is God's. Give unto God the things that are God's. But what isn't answered within Matthew 22 15 through 22 is what does belong to God. What is it that Yahweh actually wants? Traditionally, we then say that if the image and inscription make sees the coin belong to Caesar, and the question comes down to what bears God's image and what bears God's inscription. And the first of those questions is pretty easy. God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But what bears God's inscription? Not a significant theme. Not something that's very obvious. So maybe we're supposed to see something about how redeemed saved humanity, has written upon their hearts the law of God. Maybe we're supposed to see something about the mark of Yahweh, which in every biblical account precedes the mark of the beast. Maybe we're supposed to see something about that reality of the mark of Yahweh upon the hand or the forehead. Or maybe... There's something else that we're supposed to see that we're supposed to be giving back unto God. There's two verses that talk about giving to Caesar this tribute. The first one, the word is a pretty simple word meaning give. That's in verse 17. Here in verse 21, it's a different word adds a prefix before it, says something along the lines of give back or give what is due. And it's a word that Matthew used in Matthew twenty-one forty-one. 41. Look with me at Matthew 21, 41. Jesus is giving the parable of the tenant farmers That farmers have killed the son. They refuse to give the fruit of the vineyard to the Lord. They refuse to honor the status of the son. And the Lord has just asked, the Lord Jesus has just asked, what will happen to those tenant farmers? And the Pharisees provide this answer, Matthew 21, 41. They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. The point remains much the same. God does command giving. Not because he wants our money. He wants our hearts. He wants the fruit of obedience coming from a change of heart. Jesus doesn't look at the face of men in terms of being influenced by them. He also doesn't look at the face of men in order to find those who please him or not. He's ultimately looking at our hearts. He doesn't want our money for its own sake. He wants us to give as a point of saying where our treasure is, there our heart is also. He wants us to give as a token of a deeper heart loyalty to him. And the same thing can be said about our service and our time. The same thing can be said about anything he commands. CS Lewis explains it's right Christ says give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. All of you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. Brothers and sisters, he wants us wholly committed, wholly devoted to him. He doesn't look at our appearance, he tries our heart. He knows what is there, and he desires to transform it into complete loyalty to him. The text before us ends simply in verse 22. They've set their trap, they're tempting. Jesus has responded. This is how they respond. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. After keeping score on a scoreboard, The score is Jesus one, Pharisees zero. Instead of getting what they wanted and finding him in some sort of way a foul of the crowds or a foul of the Roman government, he has proven their flattery to be true. The disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians who asked the questions have only to go away in amazement. Standing in complete marveling, astonishment and awe, and Jesus saw through their poise, looked into the heart, and explained the way of God again, truthfully, sincerely,
1: and beautifully
0: about what God requires. And as we think about the fact of how we might want to live in light of this text, we should probably start right there. They may not have come to a point of becoming disciples of Jesus. And we don't fully know what struck them as being awesome and worthy of astonishment here. But we have much that we can look at in this text and see as being astonishing about Jesus' wisdom and beauty. So many ways in which he could have answered the question wrong, in which he could have made it to be accelerating a crucifixion, in which he could have been fueling an uprising, in which he could have shown that he looked and cared about the appearance of men. But instead, he tries the heart and the wings. And he shows God's ultimate plan. The very wisdom of God cannot be trapped. The Creator of all words will not misspeak. So we have reason to stand in awe amazement and astonishment at all that he has done and will do. There's also two more things I think we should see. It's a warning and an encouragement. The warning is that he does not look at the face of men To be swayed by appearances. A warning is that he's not tricked by our external performances. This whole passage is in an increasing conflict with the Pharisees. Who believed that what they were on the outside mattered. And would be significant. But Jesus is not swayed by such appearances. Any external obedience, any dotting every I and crossing every T, even when it comes to obeying the words that are included in this book, will not satisfy Christ, will not satisfy God, will not cover over the wrongs, the sins that we have done. No external trapping on of any righteousness is going to change the heart of sin, heart of stone, and heart of depending upon man that is within us. The only way for that to be so we avoid the fiery punishment of hell, but instead rejoice in the presence of our Savior forever, is to come to Jesus Christ. Because he died so as to transform hearts. To take out the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. To give to us the spirits and indeed to write upon our hearts his law. So that then the obedience comes from a heart of loyalty and a heart of love. And not a heart of trying to achieve and accomplish our own. Come to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Turn from the sin. Turn from any external righteousness, any desire to put things on the outside that cohere with the word. Come to Jesus. Take him as your only hope. Turn to him and believe that his death and his resurrection is all we need ever need and all that can supply for our life. It's the warning to the insincere who simply worry about the outside. There's also an incredible encouragement. Jesus, as we talked about, is potentially the only human being Who never experienced, or whoever got over experience for those other than him. The feelings of peer pressure and shame about living in the right manner of situation. But to those of us who are sincere, to those of us who genuinely repent, turn from our sins, and believe in Jesus Christ. God's not a taskmaster with a roller looking at whether we dot every I and cross every T. Jesus isn't sitting there interested in every performance we do and hoping that we measure up to his perfect standard of obedience. He demands true obedience, not perfect obedience. He ultimately wants us. He ultimately wants our hearts. He wants true and sincere obedience from a heart that he himself has changed to be loyal to him and committed to him. Brothers and sisters, let's render unto God the things that are God. Let's give him ourselves. Father God, we're here to remind us of your greatness, your worthiness. And we are now coming before you to dedicate ourselves again, as we must do every day, to you, to your plan. Lord, it's so easy for our treasure to be in the things of this earth. I ask, Lord, that you would guide us to treasure you, to treasure your son, and to take joy in the fact that you and your son and your spirits are not swayed by appearances. Help us then in sincerity worship and obey you. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, summers from the pulpit of the Faustoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?